to Why Talk Climate, an expert podcast series on mobilizing youth for climate action, produced and directed by BCCIC Climate Change. Welcome back to the Why Talk Climate podcast. I'm here with Mark Castonge, who's helping host our podcast roundtable with three of BCCIC's delegates to the 66th UN Commission on the Status of Women. You're joining us now for part two of the roundtable. If you haven't heard part one, please check out the previous episode. It was fantastic, and we're just continuing the discussion right now. Actually, this is um, a great place to go into the topic of intersectionality at this commission. Mark, I'm going to hand it off to you. Yeah, we've began to hit on very important points leading to intersectionality with in terms of policymaking and having different perspectives of what that could look like. So our question would be, intersectionality is such an important concept in policymaking, but it can feel very abstract to many people. What does intersectionality look like in practice, such as in a space like the CSW? Patashi, I was hoping you could start us off. Yeah, I can do that. Thank you. Especially with huge organizations such as the UN, we think that there is a one piece that'll fit, one piece that will put in, one piece of new information, one solution that we can just put in, and it'll solve all of our problems everywhere. When that's that's not true. Even if it, there are similar situations in two different parts of the world, it's not going to fit. Because within our own different societies, we have little things that make up who we are as who we are as people and where we stand in a society. So when you boil it down, when you look at, let's say, Canada, we look at all the different things that could affect our lives and the issues that we have. Something in Canada. If we just say, oh, we're not going to use plastic anymore, that's fine. We don't, we don't need single-use plastics. It's not going to work. It's not good for us. Let's just cut it out. And I know this has been something that Canada has been trying to do for a while now. And you bring up, oh, let's have reusable, reusable products, and we'll just send those out everywhere. Sounds like it would work, but it wouldn't. When you look at the different parts, you look at the different socioeconomic statuses of everyone, what kind of resources they have. In a lot of rural and indigenous communities, there is no clean water. So if there's no clean water, how do you clean your reusable products? If there's, if there's no power, how do, you, how do you heat your water? How do you sanitize those things? So it's important to not look at things as a whole and think you can just have one solution. You have to look at everything that would impact that person's life. And it's a lot of things to look at. Like the location where you live, your you get race, ethnicity, your gender, even like even like the little teeny things that you wouldn't think would affect it's going to affect it. Within the CSW, I guess it gets even wider and even larger. And to be, to be completely honest, I don't know what it looks like in the CSW. When it comes to learning what that looks like on a global and international scale, you need 
to include so many more voices than just one. I don't think it can be summed up with just one person's voice. Even if I was like to talk to so many people, I don't think I would be able to do it. It's something that more voices need to be included because it's not just what you're saying, it's how you're saying it as well. Wow. Thank you so much for that. That really hit on a lot of key points and it relates to, for like one specific thing, if you ask two different people, there's going to be two different ways to approach that and come up with a solution. And that can be applied to any type of solution in the world. There's no textbook definition of how to approach anything. And you also hit on specific examples such as single-use plastics, which can be applied in Canada within uh, indigenous communities, but also elsewhere in the world who can relate with that same notion of how eliminating single-use plastics would drastically affect so many lifestyles and uh, livelihoods. And Anik, I was wondering if you could share your thoughts on what intersectionality looks like at the CSW. Yeah, absolutely. I really appreciated what Patashi said about um, needing so many different voices. I think the intersection of gender and climate is definitely one example of intersectionality in the broadest sense, but it can definitely be broken down into a further level, as Patashi was saying become a little bit more nuanced. And uh, Rubina provided a really helpful example of this in rural Pakistan communities, where she explained that if there's a community made in the village level for water governance, and they intentionally make it mandatory to include women and minorities in that group, what happens? Well, the representation of a woman is a woman from the majority, usually Muslim, and the representation of the minority is a minority man. And this leaves the minority woman totally absent from those decision-making structures. Therefore, additional affirmative action needs to be taken to improve the involvement of the most marginalized women, whether they are minority women, women who are differently abled, divorced, or widowed. Because in patriarchal societies, women and divorcees are especially stigmatized. And Kala mentions similar experiences in Sri Lanka, where women in poverty, widows, and female-headed households face greater challenges surrounding involvement in community action and meaningful participation in these processes. Rubina reminds us that when we talk about the development or nurturing of leadership among women, we have to take special measure to nurture the leadership among the most excluded women. And so I think in that context. It's not just about climate change and gender, but also about status in in society, socioeconomic status, religion, and all of these multifaceted things. Wow. That was such a good point to hit on, specifically because bringing in just one minority group, as you said, it's often just the majority of that minority group. And those who are most marginalized are completely left out. And it's very difficult for them to even get involved in the first place. Viv, I was wondering if you could round off our conversation on intersectionality. Sure, thanks. Um, so Patashi and Anik already raised some very key points around this area, but at one of the CSW sessions I was at, one official council, I can't recall her name or representation right now, but she said that climate change is like a massive ocean and we're all on it in some way. But if anybody is assuming that we're in the same vehicle as we try to cross this ocean, they're deeply mistaken. Some of us are in yachts, some of us are in small boats, some of us are on a 
simple draft of wood, just trying to stay afloat. And I think that was such a tangible way to depict intersectionality and how it overlaps with climate change. There are so many different ways in which all of us are experiencing it. Most of us who are talking about it are often at the higher ends of power. So those who are facing multiple levels or are influenced in multiple levels by like power dimensions, they're not even part of the conversation yet because they simply haven't been given the space or platform to do to be able to do that. So what another session that I was at, one of the speakers, uh, translators was running a little bit late. And so she was supposed to go first, but she ended up going second to last because she simply wasn't able to communicate. Um, her translation wasn't able um, and so when her translator finally came on, what he communicated was, she was saying, I was here from the very start and I was listening to what all of you are saying, but I couldn't explain to you what I had to say all this time simply because you wouldn't understand me. And it's because we somehow like through colonization, through imperial practices have come to take English as like everybody's learned language and mean of communication. And she was like, I have three PhDs from my local university, but that's not gonna be enough for you because I'm not speaking English. And that was such a powerful moment where like you would think language is a relatively smaller um, barrier of like the intersectional wheel or wheel of power and privilege, you know? Things like um, your skin color, your citizenship are a lot more like Im immediately impactful, but here is a woman who like by the academic standard is, you know, perfectly fits the bill to have this conversation by stereotypical standards, but yet she's still not able to participate because there's like simply another small barrier blocking her. And so to imagine somebody who, um, like Anik said, like, even if you're talking about a village, you're going to have a minority woman even in there who's just not going to be given the platform to participate because there's some assumption that one person can represent everyone. And that's a deeply problematic one because there are so many different personalities, lived experiences, stories that simply have to be uncovered for us to realize one, the like concerns everybody faces with regards to climate change and two, the solutions that they hold. I am almost certain that if, you know, half the women out there and the gender diverse people out there were given the opportunity to speak about the ideas they have on climate justice and climate change, there would already be a million solutions out there that we aren't considering right now because we are operating in like set stone procedures and policies. And the third thing that the CSW brought in with regards to intersectionality is the importance of levels of government. So a lot of times I think we lean towards federal governments as being the most instrumental in bringing about change, especially because they're able to converse on the international level. But when we're talking about issues such as not having clean water in your community, especially for Indigenous people in Canada, or the level of homelessness that currently exists in Vancouver, nobody really in the international sphere is going to be as motivated or as desperate to act on that as like a municipal or a provincial government. So as citizens of our communities, it's our responsibility to stay on top of them and to demand justice and action, whether that be through petitions or to talking through our city council or through just having conversations with our community or through peaceful protesting. Because if we let simply let the conversation of climate ch change and justice go to the international level and at conventions like CSW or COP20, but then like basic issues 
in Canada aren't being resolved or in our local communities aren't being resolved, then as climate justice impacts go up, like the heat wave of last summer or the fires in BC or then the crazy snowstorm, it's like the homeless people over here who aren't going to have the voice and representation because they're facing barriers of intersectionality themselves. They don't have a home. And so they probably don't even have the opportunity to vote because you actually need to have a home address to put in for to even vote for something so they can vote on policies that impact them. So it's our job as the local representatives over here to demand our government to act on benefits for them, whether that be creating shelters during times of extreme weather or forwarding those conversations further to the provincial or federal level. So I think that was something that really stuck with me because I was previously like based on what I learned in school, looking to federal government for action on climate justice matters. But I was really reminded that as somebody, you know, with the ability to speak English, with the ability to like converse in a lot of fields that people of uh, who are experiencing intersectional barriers aren't able to, I should be creating spaces for them while I can, while the federal government also does their work and I continue to hold them accountable. Well, that that was amazing. Uh, I, I feel like that really sums up like the, whole idea of intersectionality completely. It's not just about someone's race or gender, but there's so many other levels to it, whether it's socioeconomic barriers, language barriers, and even looking at from a local lens to a regional and international lens to solve issues uh, such as gender equality or climate justice and coming up with these solutions, taking in everyone's perspectives and having so many other solutions is really what's going to drive us forward. And I think your example of everyone on the ocean having a different different vessel, the example really contributes to our next question, which Eliana can take over. Yeah, I want to actually say thank you for introducing that example, because sometimes it helps to like explain a topic visually. And that visual representation was really impactful. It really resonated with me. And it it, it shows you that visions of climate justice, justice are often unique to everyone's lived experience, correct? That And that lived experience, I think a little bit was a representation of the different boats and the different places in the ocean and just, and so how do dialogues of climate justice change based on lived experience? And that could be between different communities in Canada or between those from the global north or the global south. Anik, would you like to start? Yeah, absolutely. As I mentioned previously, there's uh, a lack of space for those who are truly impacted by climate change and decision-making spaces at higher level forums. And we know this is true aside from just observing it because these women are also excluded from meaningful participation at the lower levels of decision-making within their own countries, communities, and families. In Sri Lanka, Kala explained that In principle, women aren't excluded, but they're not recognized in climate change interventions. And why is this? It's because they don't have scientifically proven thoughts, but they have thoughts and suggestions which they've proven by lived experience. It's just not given the same value as scientifically proven. But these women work in animal husbandry as milk farmers, mushroom producers, organic vegetable cultivators, they support reforestation, they know their formulas and they know their solutions. But these solutions are considered to be local and not good enough to be promoted as best practices. 
but Kala highlighted that women shouldn't be vulnerable. They shouldn't end up as victims. But unless you understand what makes you vulnerable, the marginalization connected to the status of vulnerability is really difficult to identify. And real solutions come from both creating a change in the conditions as well as establishing long-term sustainable solutions that bring about change in status. And she illustrated this through an example of a woman who might have to walk miles to fetch drinking water. And because of the changes in climate, it continues to go beyond her reach. Now you can dig a well and that would change the condition around her, but it does not change her status. And so vulnerability should be understood very clearly in order to strategize and address the practical needs towards reaching gender equality. Without this, women will continue to be victimized and interventions will be welfare oriented, which only gives alternatives for that moment. Paula emphasized that the development sector interventions need to continue to call for women's leadership in that area by addressing the practical needs of the moment while also targeting long-term sustainable change. And this ties in really well with what Rubina spoke about, where she said that we first need to increase and enhance leadership, not just among women, but also nurturing leadership of girls. And there are already some women leaders in Pakistan, but their lack of vis visibility prevents them from reaching higher level policy dialogues and forums, such as the CSW. So women's leadership, which is so important for rural women, is not just about the presence of women in decision-making structures, but also the visibility of that, those women's leadership. And it's through this that builds resilience to adapt to climate change and see that women have already been taking impactful initiatives. In Pakistan, women have given a strong message to policymakers that this is the time to mainstream gender in climate change programs and policies. And they've been advocating to ensure gender sensitive investments in programs for adaptation, mitigation, capacity building programs and technology transfer in different provinces of Pakistan. Oh, what you said is really important because I think kind of a key takeaway of what resonated with me is, is make space, <laughs> make space for the knowledge that exists, make space for the creativity that exists, make space, you know, for the lived experience and for just all the value that can can be brought to these discussions on climate change and climate solutions. And uh, you're absolutely right. I 100% agree. Vib, what about you? What are your thoughts? Yeah, so I have had the privilege of growing up in seven countries before I came to university. And it was a little jarring to see how deferring the narrative around climate change can be in each one. So obviously my stay in them spans all the way from 1999 to 2017. So a lot of like shifted time across that. But for example, most recently I was in Venezuela, which I, as I previously mentioned, is uh, politically and economically distraught. So over there for the entire community and especially women, the priority wasn't it can't be to have discussions around climate change, you know, because at that time, and even to this day, their priority is simply like, 
helping their families survive until the next day, whether it be like securing food, medicine, providing their kids with some sort of education because the shelves are barren. There's no access to like basic medical needs. There's no sense of security or comfort. And so having a discussion around climate justice or change or long-term benefits seems almost gratuitous at this point when there's not basic political action to benefit them. In a different stance, like before that, when I was living in Canada from 2010 to 2014, the climate change narrative was like, oh, everybody gets an electric car and we'll be okay. It was very much, you know, kind of almost oversimplifying the problem and definitely an overlooking of the intersectional lens. It was like, oh, if the problem is that we don't have enough solar panels out yet, the problem is that we don't have enough electric cars on the road, the problem is that we haven't built the next hydropipe yet, but nobody has brought up the point that, you know, this is a country of mostly immigrants in like the early 1800s who are part of like the colonizing chain who has directly impacted the global South. And a lot of the ramifications of climate issues that they're facing today, whether it be a tornado or a heat wave, they can't as quickly spring back from because they don't have the same level of infrastructure, technological advancement, human capital, or monetary resources to be able to do that as a country in the global north. Um, and so I think one of the narratives that I've seen in global south countries on like the political and economic side is very much a push for first like fully acknowledging the responsibility that global north countries have played i think it's like around 92 percent is the number that that's the historical percentage of onus that falls on global north countries based on their industrialization that has directly contributed to emission rates going up so only eight percent lying on global south and yet somehow i think a lot of us can still see in discussions there's like a back and forth like global north countries are still trying to push back some of the responsibility that oh global south countries are chasing development now so now you should be paying for your own resources for your own technology and even if they sign on to deals to pay them like i believe they did about 10 years ago at one of the cops they pushed that money back forward so they're i think some north countries like oh 100 billion dollars to global south countries and they're like oh we'll do it in 2020 and then we'll do it in 2023 and these countries are waiting over here they're you know their women aren't able to access long-term resources they're not able to access training or education to enter into better professions and it's because they're their government probably does not have the current funds to be able to do that for them to some extent, at, at least. Uh, obviously, there's like corruption, flawed political models going on there too, but there's a a large sense of responsibility that the global north is just looking away from and a large oversimplification of this climate justice problem and the kind of like funding role they need to play in order to make back on a lot of the damages they've caused. And I think Jeffrey Sachs in his books also talks about the fact that it can't just be like money thrown at a global South country because they haven't helped design strong political models. And so there's a lot of corruption and poor management over there. And so if you just send in like boats of money, they're just going to be spent or stolen or misused. Instead, what you need to do is provide like tangible infrastructure items or human capital training or technological resources that they can actively and successfully implement in their, into their countries to like long-term work towards climate improvement. And I think those that recognition needs to happen so that governments can bring in that money, they can bring in that improvement, they can support women and gender diverse communities within the country. But the fact that all the global North countries I've lived in shy away from that and consistently overlook it, it seems very irresponsible. Definitely. I think there uh, there's a missing piece where we 
bring solutions and we, you know, bring what we think is the, the, the correct thing for a certain community. And we think less about support and resources and, you know, recognizing that they're leaders of the solution and that we, we're there kind of in a way to provide what they need, right? In terms of any kind of support or resources and, and hearing from them first and foremost, I think that's the most important thing. 100%. I, I completely agree. Patashi, what about you? Yes. So there, there are many different dialogues around climate justice here, here in Canada. And for me, that the different, the different conversations we're having stem from where you're coming from, where you're living, along with um, your education and socioeconomic status. So for me, my my view on climate, on the current climate crisis and the climate ju- and climate justice within itself is going to look a lot different. For me, I I grew up rural. I grew up in a super small town, four hours outside of Vancouver. And if you've heard of Lytton, which if you're from Canada, you probably have, because last summer with all the wild wildfires that burned through, it took away ninety percent of my town. And with that that's kind of seen as one of the biggest things, but over the years we've seen so many versions of how the climate crisis can affect us. And for us, it's been very real. For us, it's been very real and it's been real for many years now. And when I see, because climate justice, it's kind of coming out a little more. People are learning a lot more and hearing a lot more about it, but it's not seen as urgent and drastic as it actually is. So I know I moved, I moved to Vancouver six, seven months ago and hearing things that were happening a little more Northern Canada, it wasn't, it was just like, oh, so yeah, this is, this is kind of happening, but it wasn't seen as urgent or as real as it is for a lot of people. And with that, it's with the urgency because it's I know in Vancouver um, with the heat waves that were blue all across North America I know with the heat waves in Vancouver it was really bad and that and it was a lot warmer than people were used to here there were a lot of there were a lot of deaths around the heat waves um, because people aren't used to the heat and for a lot of people it was kind of just seen as inconvenient oh my air conditioner wasn't working was working overtime oh my my bill's gonna go up now um but back home during heat waves like our our temperature got up to 55 so recorded if you look at the recordings it it does say i think it said 49.2 degrees celsius but if you look at different areas of the town because that's one spot in town that's probably the lowest spot where the actual thermometer is so if you go up a little higher up into the mountains it does get a lot higher and when you when you look at the ramifications of that, our crops were gone. We lost a lot of our plants, a lot of the foods that we harvest. The temperatures of the rivers have changed now. So we're losing a lot of food that way, a lot of our, our traditional foods and ways of life. So the difference between someone's... Um, Electri- like electricity bill being super high that month because of their having to run their air conditioner continuously. And then four hours away, we aren't allowed to fish. We aren't allowed to pick our traditional foods and medicines because now they're dried up and they're gone. 
So there's a difference in seriousness, I guess I would say, where it's going to be happening here in Vancouver sooner. It is. And it's, it's slowly making its way down. But I guess it, it changes too with whether you're able to leave. I know a lot of people have their vacation houses. And last, last summer, they were like, oh, it's super smoky here. So we'll just go to our house across, across the country. So it changes how it affects you if you're able to just leave. So, but yeah, I guess I'd say the dialogues is in the seriousness between people within socioeconomic status. And then I guess the dialogues between education and lived experience and the seriousness of that as well. So you can say, because the climate crisis seems like it's coming up fast and it's changing faster. So we don't have the data to back it up. But with someone with lived experience and can see and who have who has lived here and can see it really fastly ramping up compared to the temperatures and how the air feels and precipitation levels, how that has changed. You see it a lot faster because you're, you're used to it. Oh, it's, it's this sunny. It's this sunny in March and it's a lot warmer this year. And you're able to see the changes a lot faster. That's not technically backed up by scientific data and knowledge. Actually, before I pass it off to Mark, I uh, wanted to ask a follow-up because a lot of what you said really resonated with me. And it's like the reality of the world that we live in right now. And my follow-up question, if we could take a minute to answer this, is how do we stop overlooking these experiences? And how do we start to become more conscious of what's happening in different communities and not turn a blind eye or, or, you know, just because it's not in the news or it's not the talk of the town that, you know, it's just not heard of, that it's not important because it is. And because these experiences are very real and they're felt and uh, how, how do we become more conscious of them? Yeah, that's, yeah, that's a huge question. That's a huge question. It's a huge question. (laughs) Especially, especially when a lot of these issues aren't, aren't seen in the news or like widely talked about. And it, I feel like it comes to like a more personal and close level where look at you have to look at your own circle. Um, who who do you have in your circle is is super important when it comes to things like this. Like I I remember when I first moved to Vancouver and all of these big things were happening and all of my friends were from the city and I was like, hey, did you know about this? And they were like, no, like I heard, but I didn't think it was that bad. I think it's really expanding your social circles. And really looking at, really looking at, like, are these, but also looking and finding smaller, smaller, I guess, not new, like, news pages. I know a lot of, a lot of Indigenous communities have their own, have their own news and they have their own ways of putting out media. So also looking at those rather than relying on the bigger and larger, yeah, looking, looking at things on a smaller scale and paying attention to to the area that you're in and yeah maybe it, like it reminds me of how we don't stop to think like for example where our food comes from from for example when we just buy stuff in the supermarket and we we never think where is this from how is it produced how how did it end up on our plates or in our grocery bags 
And so maybe another point could be reflection and really thinking sometimes about like these disasters that we hear in the news. The the impact could be going far beyond what was addressed in the newscast or in the newspaper. And so maybe taking some time to reflect on really the impact and the scope of what we're seeing around climate change and climate and climate justice and gender equality and just thinking and pausing and taking a moment to to really understand the complexity of issues and and how there could be effects that might be direct and they're felt by us or they're felt by a certain community but taking a moment to also look at the indirect effects and and how really i think the the way we live is like really a, a chain reaction so when something happens like what happens to biodiversity what happens to communities what happens to livelihoods like just taking a moment to really think about events and our lives and our lifestyles and our communities and our interactions with people in a multifaceted way i think that's 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 really important. So I'm glad that we took a moment to, to follow up on that because we need to do more of that for sure moving forward in these discussions and interactions. Mark, I'm going to pass it off to you because he has our final question. But I, I hate when we get to the final question because that means like our conversation is coming to an end, but it's been so valuable. And Mark has this final question that's going to wrap up the entire thing. Mark, go ahead. Yeah, I can't believe we're already approaching the end of our discussion. It's been so insightful and amazing to listen to everything you've had to say. But this is this question is more focused on looking forward and is more directed to our listeners and youth who are interested in becoming more active in climate justice and for gender equality. After attending the commission, do you have any advice for young leaders who want to impact climate justice and gender equality? Fib, uh, did you want to start? For sure. Thank you. I also can't believe we're already at our last question. This has been such a productive and insightful conversation for me as well. But I think what I'll say is the most revolutionary like speakers that I got to hear from at the CSW weren't the like officials or people who you know often occupy spaces of power and they are like externally projected on a regular basis the most impactful uh, speakers were the youth and the women who were coming in from like villages and they had never spoken in such a setting before but they they were so clear and concise and fulfilled in what they are experiencing and like what they wanted to say that i think for any youth leader who's listening and who wants to take on an opportunity to impact climate justice and gender equality, don't be afraid by considering an opportunity as like too small or too limited. Like if it's a small organization that's just tied to your community, even if it's just like your apartment building holding something related to climate change, um, take that first step and try to find avenues of further action because it's going to be your motivation and your resilience that's going to get you to a place of, you know, participating in a CSW or bringing about like policy change or impacting like a policymaker directly. But don't be don't be held back by the fear that like this isn't the first right step for you because it's going to allow you to connect with other people who are 
similarly motivated and who want to have these conversations. And I think what I enjoyed about this podcast episode so much is like hearing from Patashi and Onique as well on their experiences. And so if you're getting involved in something in your community, you're going to get to hear from your community members and their experiences. And I think the learning part is what's so key over here. It's it's what's going to help us overcome those barriers of intersectionality is just listening to each other, learning and working towards like proactive and positive action. So just keep an eye open for opportunities. Send those emails, like send those follow up emails, send those cold calls. Don't be afraid because like the worst you're going to hear back from an organization at that time is going to be a no or we'll get in touch with you later. But the best you're going to hear is like being introduced to a community who is just as passionate and driven as you are. So I think that'll be my advice. And don't be afraid if there are no opportunities to create or do something, lead something yourself. I've seen so many youth do that. They don't find an opportunity, so they actually create a solution themselves. Is, don't you see that as well? Yeah, definitely. Thank you for bringing that up. So, uh, you know, there were people at the CSW youth who were speaking about the fact that they wanted to raise money for um, some climate action in their community and to support some of the women who were doing such hard work in the agricultural industry. But their area didn't sell black pepper. And since black pepper is such a commodity in the meals they make, they rented out a little plot on their school land and they started going black pepper and then selling it amongst their community. So here's a youth who like found something that needed to be done and did it. So if you're listening and there's a problem and there isn't an organization for it, the most important thing you can do is just take that first step yourself and, you know, create something or band together your friends and your community members and work towards it. Wow. I, I love that answer so much. And I think that's a really important thing to take away is just to get involved, uh, no matter how small the effort is. If you see something that interests you, just to go for it. doesn't matter if it's just not the exact thing you're looking for to set you on the right trajectory. And also, we've seen so many amazing things that have been kickstarted by youth who've just seen an issue and just gone ahead and went after it to come up with a solution. Patashi, I was wondering if you had any advice that you could pass on to our listeners. Yes, I. my biggest piece of advice would be to not be afraid to take up space. And not only not be afraid to take up space, but within that don't be afraid to speak up. I know when I when I first started out in climate justice, um, I was so like, am I allowed to be here? Like, is that okay? Like, I was so nervous about taking up space and then also speaking out. And I was, I was so, I was so worried. I'm like, am I qualified to speak? Like, I, I don't have, I didn't, I don't have the education. I don't have the education backing me. Like, am I allowed to be here? Am I allowed to talk? But don't be afraid to speak out and take up that space. Because you, like the youth, youth of today are amazing. There's so many new ideas and new innovations that need to be heard. And everyone's voice is important. Everyone's perspective and minds are going to be so important in the next few years with coming up with these solutions and they need to be heard. So don't be afraid or be afraid, but do it anyways. <laughs> I think that's, that's a big thing because I... I know I'm not the biggest public speaker. I'm talking right now and my hands are sweating. My voice is a little shaky, but I, I'm still here. I'm still sharing my point of view and I'm just still sharing all of this. 
even when you feel a little over your head and that's okay i think i feel everyone 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 feels that at some point or another don't push past push past the the imposter syndrome is it what has been a big thing for me so push push past that push through it your your voice deserves to be heard and there are people who will listen that's so amazing i i think having the attitude that of to take up space and to not be scared to do so is so important having imposter syndrome is definitely the key thing that i think that we don't realize is everyone else is probably experiencing that same feeling that you're not qualified that you don't you're not valid to speak up on this issue that your opinion or perspective is not appropriate to be used in that scenario i think that is definitely a huge takeaway for our listeners to be heard to be listened to and to actively participate so thank you so much for sharing that and anik you can uh, round off our lovely discussion with any words of advice that you have for our listeners yeah absolutely thank you it has been just such a pleasure to be a part of this conversation with vivin patashi and everyone today and I think, first of all, it is really exciting to just recognize that there are young leaders who want to impact climate justice and gender equality because that feels it needs to happen more uh, in our leadership. And so uh, given that youth are the leaders of tomorrow um, who can start now, I'm just really grateful that we're even having this conversation. But I would really like to pass on advice from the women that I learned so much from during CSW. And I encourage anyone who is receiving this advice to just take a posture of just receiving, whether it's closing your eyes or just, you know, just opening your mind. Uh, I find that really helpful for me to just listen and be present. So this is from Fernand and Fabienne from Haiti. And they say, do not be afraid to be in the forefront of change. Believe in your own strengths and abilities. You are powerful and courageous. And you can do many things for change. And Kala from Sri Lanka reminds us that welfare doesn't support women to get empowered, but instead the unheard should be heard through strategic interventions to make long-term change. And that sustained empowerment is where empowered women and people extend the same support to the rest of the women in the community to make realistic change. And lastly, I would like to share this encouraging quote from Rubina. We have to be very innovative and creative when we come across these kinds of challenges. Yes, of course, the challenges are there, but the solutions are also there to overcome these challenges. And that's something that I really hope that we all can take with us moving forward after this discussion. Thank you so much for uh, sharing that with us. I think sharing the words of others who attended the commission is really great for our listeners to take forward and to have that courage to be at the forefront of change. Unfortunately, we're at the end of our conversation. I'll pass it on to Eliana to wrap things up for us. Well, first of all, <laughs> I want to say thank you. Thank you for being here and thank you for joining us and for sharing your thoughts and reflections and learnings and takeaways and inspirations from CSW. I personally wasn't a part of it this year, so I'm I feel like I got 
a little bit of a insider kind of look at what happened and just the waves of change that it's going to create. Uh, so thank you so much for providing that to our listeners and, you know, for doing all of the amazing work that you do around gender equality and climate change. And thank you all to our listeners for joining us, for listening to this roundtable. We've loved hearing insights and advice from these young climate leaders. If you want to learn more about CSW and the BCCIC delegation, you can visit bccic.ca or at bccic. That's the handle on several social media platforms, LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, but also our Instagram of at bccic.climate. You can follow us there on Instagram to learn more, to hear this episode, and to follow us for future episodes. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you all very, very soon. Have a great day. Bye.